Sound Design. Can you learn it all on the job? You can. I certainly wouldn't recommend it. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by touring front of house sound engineer Robert Scoville and his two dogs. Robert, welcome to Sound Design Live. <laughs> Me and the dogs uh, are great. Uh, glad to be here. <laughs> now, Robert, I actually couldn't find anything out about you in preparation for this interview, so I'm assuming that you're just starting out in the industry. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, just did my first live gig the other day, so yes. <laughs> it was pretty exciting. <laughs> All right, Robert. So everyone knows that you worked with Tom Petty for a long time, so why don't you share with us your favorite Tom Petty song? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I have a Tom, favorite Tom Petty song. I, I certainly have um, some that are very near and dear to my heart, so I'll, I'll share one of those. And I, I think I might have shared this publicly before. Uh, but, you know, me and my wife kind of have a song. You know, we, it seems like every time I do a tour, you know, there will be one song on the tour that kind of becomes ours, and we have some nice memories around it. And that one is uh, certainly King's Highway. There's certain songs that just kind of get to me when he plays them live, and when I'm mixing that one, you know, it's hard to stay focused. <laughs> so, wow, yeah. so you know, it's it just it's like that, you know, in touring. You know, you, you, when you work with acts long enough, you know, they all become your favorite songs after a while. <laughs> sure, everyone has that experience of uh, starting on a project and and thinking like, I, I'm not sure if I'm totally into this music, and then you know, you get a few weeks into it, and you're like, I love every song, and you can't yeah, get it out of your yeah. head. Doesn't matter what it is, you know, it'll stick with you for a while, no doubt about it. So, Robert, how did you get your very first job in audio, like your first paying gig? I was in college at the time, studying towards a double E. I'd come out of high school at 17 and had enrolled right into this technical college, you know, studying towards a double E in electronic engineering. And I had always really, I mean, I was trying to find my way into, you know, to music production. That's what I wanted to get into. And uh, at the school, the local, a local regional sound company, kind of a, a kind of a regional heavyweight sound company, uh, came and put up an ad uh, requesting volunteers, you know, uh, to come down and work on this big uh, series of shows that they held every weekend during the summer called the Parks, the Summer Park Series or the Brush Creek Park Series. I can't remember what it was called now, but okay, um, they had a, you know, it was a big event. They would have put on these free concerts down there and. 15,000, 16,000 people would show up on the weekends to see these things. I mean, they were big events. Wow. They weren't little sure. little events. So they needed so, a lot of labor. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was all over it. I was like, yeah, I'm going. I, I want to be a part of this. So, you know, went down and volunteered uh, for the first week. And, uh, you know, they shoved me right in, had me doing a lot of stuff. And, and uh, you know, just to be true to, you know, true to my word here and, and, and truthful about it, I was awful. I was awful. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what we would expect on your very first gig. <laughs> yeah, no. I, well, I mean, you know, and you know, this is kind of similar to kind of what happens in the world today. You know, I think these guys at this company kind of said, "Well, let's go to the electronic engineering school and pull those guys. They'll be pretty sharp. You know, we'll uh-huh. we'll be able to pull those in." It's no different than kind of getting interns out of recording schools and stuff like that to go out on the road. You know, where there's this expectation that they're going to know these things. You know. Oh right. And. 
you know, I got there. I think one of the first thing, blunders that I did was, you know, I hooked up about 10 wedges to one half of an amplifier <laughs> and blew up the amplifier, you know, where, you know, where the irony is, you know, you're in technical school, you're in engineering and design school. You understand all the concepts of circuit loading and impedance and all those things. You know, you're studying them every day in school. You just have no practical application of it. So, you know, you show up and, here, plug these wedges in. Okay. Sure. Boom, smoke, you know, so. Wow. So, the you know, the funny part was, you know, they, they didn't, you know, I, I didn't get called back the next weekend. I, I sat by the phone kind of waiting to get called back because I wanted to go down again and work so bad. And they didn't call. And, I wow. you know, I was watching the clock and I was thinking, okay, they got to be started by now. I'm just going to head down there. So, <laughs> so I just showed up, you know, I just showed up. And, you know, it's not like it was a big union call or any of that kind of stuff where you weren't going to have a lot of union rules in place. Uh, so I just showed up, and uh, they never called me back again, and I just kept showing up every weekend. <laughs> wow. Cool. So after a while, you know, they went through a rotation of guys, and, I, you know, I became kind of the veteran on the crew, you know, <laughs> where I was kind of, you know, I, I won't say running things, but, you know, I was in charge of a lot more than when I first got there, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I had worked an entire summer, the entire season, without getting a single paycheck. You know, the, the company had this kind of end-of-year Christmas party uh, that they invited me to. They were just like, hey, invite the guys down that work for the summer, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, after that summer series, you know, I kept going to the shop there and kind of hanging out. And they would let me help prep rigs and all kind of stuff that were going out. And and finally, you know, they ended up offering me a job kind of at that Christmas party, you know. So uh, it, it was, like I say, it was a story of perseverance, really, uh, as much as anything. Sure, you uh, just to get kept that first up. gig. That, that first paycheck tasted awful good, though. I don't mind telling you. So just a lot of volunteering basically turned into your first paying gig. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I, I, I interned there without even knowing what an intern was, you know, so. I'm sure a lot of people talk to you who um, would also like to do the job that you're doing. Do you ever recommend to them to do work for free or try volunteering? Um, is that still something that you think would be helpful to people who are starting out? I, I think it is a good attitude to have kind of in your pocket for sure that you are willing to work for free to get your foot in the door and, you know, blah, 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 you know, get, kind of get the whole thing going. Uh, that's not a that's not a bad thing to have. You know, that shows dedication and kind of commitment to what you're doing. You know, it shows that you're not there just for the paycheck. Uh, so, you know, those are good virtues to kind of be um kind of be showing somebody uh, but you know you you've got to be smart enough to turn that around at some point and actually parlay it into a into a career if that's what sure. you want to do and you know honestly that part of it I, I, honestly all of it is much much more difficult today i mean it's just the, the industry is so much denser uh and so much more specialized uh, than it was then you know i mean keep in mind you know that that year that i did that that was you know 1979 you know mm-hmm. i mean there was this that was pre-digital anything uh, and, you know, even sound reinforcement was still on whole very fundamental at that point, very basic, very fundamental. I mean, you know, you were lucky to see a 24-channel console at that point. Oh, wow. Like I say, it was a different time, and, uh, you know, it required a different set of skill sets even just to kind of get in the door. Uh, today, would you, you'd have so many more requirements uh, in terms of skill and background to even get your foot in the door now, so, you know, so. I don't think Robert's saying here, it's much harder now, and you shouldn't try, it's just that maybe things are a little bit different than just uh, going down and showing up. You might need to do a little bit of 
technical training beforehand or, uh, you know, know someone who's going to invite you in and train you for a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that would be the epiphany that anybody that walked through the door today would say. Uh, it, it even happened a little bit in 1979, but certainly today where you would walk through the door and very quickly realize you're in over your head <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. and say, OK, I've got to go get some real knowledge of this. You know, otherwise, you're going to just end up being. You know the cable monkey who you know pulls cables all day for a living. You know you're gonna, you're going to end up kind of defaulting back to you know working on you know a paid for crew somewhere and doing the menial task. You know you're not going to you're not going to be part of the technical solution here, and, and that's the epiphany that that comes into people's heads when they get into this business today. Is they you know I think they come into it thinking it's kind of simple, and it is anything but that today. It's very complex today technically. So uh, there's a lot to learn. Lot to learn. It's a big journey. Just to take one step farther with this, I had someone ask me yesterday, do I need to get trained? Can I learn everything on the job? And my answer for them was that it kind of depends on what kind of person you are. Just because I used to say to everyone in the past, yes, you have to get trained. But then I've met people since then who were training something different, like music, and were, were started out just playing in bands and being a musician at a professional level and then switched over to being an engineer and kind of trained themselves and got some help from other people and ended up becoming great mixers and having great technical minds, but not everyone can do that. And so that's what I was thinking about when you were saying you might just end up being the cable monkey because if you don't get training and you just get started assuming you'll learn everything in the job, but you don't, but you don't push that agenda, basically you don't, um, make sure that you are getting that training, nobody's really going to do it for you, you know? So yeah, I think it, that's how you might end up being the cable monkey. Yeah. It, it's a fine line, really. And it, I mean, and it's nuanced, really, in how you discuss it, you know, because it plays into personality, for sure, as well. You know, like, if you get through the door and realize you're in over your head, there's two kinds of personalities, you know, one that will fall back and one that will go forward, you know? So uh, can you learn it all on the job? You can I certainly wouldn't recommend it, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, there's, you know, it's not like there's one way to learn it, and you're totally at the bay of where you learn it. You know, I, it would be like, I want to be an Indy 500 racer. Well, I would not be the guy to throw you out on the Indy 500 track and say, go ahead, let's learn how to do it, you know? Sure. I mean, you're going to start at the very bottom there with that kind of mentality. I mean, you, you're going to, that's the slowest path, and probably the, the hardest path to take, you know, where as if you can, you know, find the quality people to get some insight, find some quality work to do and get good training on it. You know, that's that's uber important. I actually think it's kind of a and, you know, you're a good example of somebody who's trying to offset this. It's it's a real challenge for our industry right now, uh, because I, I think it's very fair to say that the technology and its capabilities have outpaced the user group that mm-hmm. is using it. Uh, there's little doubt about that, you know, especially in this IP-based world, et cetera. Now, that said, there is an entire younger generation coming up right behind us that do not think of it as exotic or anything at all. They're they're all in, and they get it. They're not scared of it or intimidated by it. You know, whereas the older crowd, you know, the guys that have been around for a long time, can get intimidated by the newer technologies, you know. So it's it, it's a balance. It's really a balance. And our, our industry is really kind of challenged with it right now of how do we train people to do this? Because there is no 
you know, for the most part, I mean, there hasn't been any really long-standing, established kind of best practices. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, you, you go to this sound company, they're going to teach you their way. You go to this sound company, they're going to teach you their way. And, you know, somewhere, if you tunnel down far enough in that, are some common audio fundamentals. But in terms of what is right and what is wrong in terms of approach, my goodness, you know, I mean, that's as broad as it comes. Yeah, it's largely unregulated industry. I was just yeah. talking with some friends this morning about, they were all talking about how they have to get their continuing education credits to continue with their licensing. And they're, uh, this was like, you know, a therapist, an acupuncturist, a, um, right, right. a, a personal trainer. And they're like, what about you? What do you have to do? And I was like, nothing. I mean, I do a lot, but I don't have to do anything. Yeah, I'm not required to do anything, Call yourself right? a sound engineer anytime you want. Yeah. Poof, you're a sound engineer. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's a weird one. I I, I I we struggle with I mean I you know, I've helped write some curriculums in my life and been involved a lot in education and training. You've got to be able to, I think, at some point define and decide what is the science and what is the art. Now, there's gonna be some little gray area there where they're gonna cross over a little bit. <clears throat> but I you know, the thing I fight so many times with younger guys or guys that are fresh to the business is confusing subjectivity with things that are absolute truths you know okay. like you know I, I i like the pa when it's when there's interaction in the pa like this you know it, it smooths it out it sounds better blah 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 you know it's like well wait a minute you know what what are we trying to achieve here yeah what do those words mean <laughs> yeah what is you know so we want time smear in the pa you like how that sounds that's an artistic decision for you is that is that what you're telling me i i mean i've had that kind of conversation infinitum on all sorts of things you know where, where, you know, many of us would look at it and just go, well, that's, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but that's wrong. That's the wrong way to do it, you know? Well, that's kind of my way of doing it. Well, okay, you know? Well, if you're going to divide, um, you know, subjectivity and objectivity and have science and art, then, yeah, on the science side, there has to be wrong and right. Right, right. Things are pretty cold and uh, cut and dried there, you know, many times, you know? But I remember having this discussion uh, with somebody talking about, you know, a horizontally re- arrayed PA and the interaction that happens in the mid and the far field with that kind of design, you know, unless it's designed very specifically. And they were, you know, they, they kept bringing up the word chaotic. Well, the, you know, it just gets chaotic the more you get into the far field. And I'm like, it's not chaotic at all. It is completely predictable, <laughs> mathematically predictable. <laughs> There's nothing chaotic about it by definition at all, you know? So, you know, it's kind of a misuse of the terms, you know? I mean, in their mind, it becomes chaotic, but it's like, no, that's not chaos. Yeah, my experience is that the more complex things get, and audio interactions are often complex, um, the more complex things get, the more people kind of want to back away from trying to understand them and say things like, I just use my ears, or... um, where we're taking the science and trying to make it art, taking the science and trying to make it subjective and saying, ah, this is just the way I like it. Well, hold on. We can actually talk about this in terms that can be measured and, and we can talk, we can use science. We don't have to be scared. (laughs) Yeah. This, this whole concept, I I mean, I'm so worn out of the, well, just use your ears. Well, okay. I I do use my ears. I, I just use the science to back up what I believe, you know, like using your ears is some sort of invalidation of any kind of scientific or methodical approach. You know, I just, yeah, it's funny that there's a divide, you know, like the whole idea that there's two camps of people who use their ears and people who don't is ridiculous. 
It is ridiculous. I, like I said, I, I'm weary of that whole. Well, I'm as weary of that one as analog versus digital. So sure, and you've talked. I know you've talked about in the past. Um, people like it to get into camps with their consoles and say, "I'm a Digico guy" or "I'm an Avid guy," and that's also yeah. not going to be helpful to you in the long run. Uh, if you're limited and you can say, oh, I can't work on that show. I'm a Digico, I'm a Digico guy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real problem in our industry right now. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've talked about this extensively and I'm trying to put together some ways, you know, in terms of uh, our community of manufacturers and users to try to quell this a little bit because it doesn't serve anybody for all of the users to become tribal, you know certainly doesn't serve the manufacturers that is for certain uh, because you know their customer bases shrink when that happens and uh, that does not serve our industry you know we we don't need less money going into the manufacturers right now if anything we need more uh, to continue the development of these products you know we i i mean dare i say it i I don't think we want to get it down to where uh, just because of revenue we only have maybe one or two console manufacturers out there you know so you know that doesn't serve anybody and, um, you know, it, cer- it certainly doesn't serve the end users to be tribal where it's like, I only want to use this console or I can, I, I, worse than that, actually, I can only use this console. I only know how to use this one console, you know, or these, these two consoles, but, uh, knowing them all and staying really fluent on all of them right now, man, that is a, that is a daunting task. Do you have any views of the future? What do you think we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, do you think consoles will continue down this path of becoming more and more specialized in their own ways of saying, we we know what's right, we know the workflow uh, that's correct and, and the features that are correct, and we're going to keep investing in that? Or do you think there'll be some kind of compromise where there will be at least some common features, common workflows, common some commonality among the consoles that will make in, uh, the skills more interchangeable? Yeah, I I think you hit on it there. I I and and this sounds fluffy to say it because I don't know how we do it at this point. I really don't. But what needs to happen is some commonality in the workflow. You know, um, you know the the biggest challenge right now is that just all the OSs, all the operating systems for these consoles are different. They all okay. work on different software. They all and just maintaining. You know, if you're if you're a guy who's going console to console to console night after night after night, which is honestly getting rarer these days just because it's such a challenge. You know, the thing that suffers the most is the show itself because then you end up having to boil your show file or your approach to getting audio through these consoles and building a show file down to its least common denominator in order to survive day to day to day, you know. So, you know, and that's the complete opposite of what we wanted to happen with digital consoles, you know. With digital, we wanted to be able to pre- present audio with great detail in it and great consistency night to night to night. And that if you're in the different console every night crowd, that is very difficult to do right now. Very difficult to do. Was Honestly, was better. That part of it was better when we were in analog, I believe it or not. I can't believe I'm going to say that, but I think it is. <laughs> well, the result, which is something that you've talked about also before, is that you end up being more of a console operator and less of a mixer. And that is you've got your head down just trying to make sure all the knobs are in the right place instead of having your head up and being more connected with what uh, the art is that you are participating with. Yeah, it's even worse than that, really, because I think, you you know, it's another term I kind of coined over the years. You get the digital handcuffs, you know, where it's like (laughs) you want to do something and you just get stopped right in your track going, how do I do that on this one?
All right, Robert, I want to talk some more about consoles, but I also, before we do that, I want to loop back to talking about personality and perseverance because perseverance is definitely, I think, a theme of your life and your career. Back in September, you and I and 10 other authors published a book called Get On Tour. So what I'd like to do is just take a deeper dive into a couple of things that you wrote there. So in 1985, you were 24 years old and you learned that there was an opening in the monitor engineer position on the John Cougar Mellencamp tour. So you write, I was certain that this was my shot. I lobbied very hard for that position. So I'm just curious. I don't know if it really matters, but what were you doing? What does lobby very hard mean? What were you doing to try and get that job? Well, I and it's important to keep the context there, right? <clears throat> because I had done the previous tour uh, working for Kenny Arnoff. So I, I had already done the Pink Houses tour. Uh, so I was, you know, I was in tune and in contact with the band's manager, the band, uh, you know, John himself. It was going to be the same sound company. You know, all of those things were common coming back for that next tour, except for the monitor engineer being gone. You know, they, they had made the claim they were going to replace uh, the monitor guy who had been with them for a long time. It was actually shocking to me that they were going to do it. And I had already been out on tours, you know, mixing monitors and engineering at that point, et cetera. So, you know, again, I just kind of felt like that was my shot. So I really started with the sound company and said, well, if they're going to, if they ask you for a reference, will you give me a reference for that position? You know, so, and they said they would, nice. um, you know, the band's tour manager, you know, I was in touch with him saying, Hey, I, I want to be considered for this job, you know, so that's who I was lobbying to really, mm-hmm. uh, as much as anybody, you know, and obviously I had the ear of the band members a little bit uh, who were very supportive of the idea. So, uh, you know, I, I, I felt like I had a good shot at getting it. And as it turned out, I did, you know, so there's some notoriety around the challenge of working for John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah, well, that w- and and that would come into play here greatly. You know, I mean, I, I don't think it's I don't think I'm talking out of school or, uh, you know, talking out of turn here to say you know John has a reputation of being a very hard guy to work for, and and honestly, I saw it firsthand on the Pink Houses tour. I I knew you know the animal that I was taking on here. You know, it, I mean, I was. I clearly understood that I was going to be sticking my head in the lion's mouth here to, to deal with this guy, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you know, I, I mean, and it sounds it sounds kind of fluffy. And was he just kind of like driving because he really wanted a a really perfect show, or was he you know what's his personality like that made it yeah, so hard? Yeah, he's a very demanding guy. Okay. I mean, I you know I, I saw him really run his band through the paces. I mean, he was really really hard on those guys. Uh, but you know, I. I and I, I say this with all sincerity. I am sure in John's heart, he felt like, I, you know, I'm Vince Lombardi and I'm going to make these guys the Green Bay Packers. I mean, you know, he was he was pushing them hard. You know, it's the old <laughs> it's the oldest coaching saying in the world, you know, push them hard now, drive them hard now, hug them later, you know. So, uh, you know, you don't have to be nice to them during that part when you're trying to drive people to be really hard and really demanding. And, and you know, that that attracted me. I, I'm not going to lie. That attracted me. I like that sort of thing. You know, I like to be pushed and driven uh, in that kind of setting. I, I just do. It's just part of my personality. I, I, I like running at challenges, you know. So, okay, good. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of saw that. So I just felt like, okay, I can do this. You know, I, I was I, I maybe probably overly confident I could do it. Uh, but felt like I could certainly do it from the technical end, you know. So Great. Well, let's talk about running at the challenge. So you did end up getting that job and then immediately, well, not immediately, but then lost it. So what happened? 
Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, obviously, I've processed this a lot in my life because it actually turned out to be, you know, it was a little, I don't want to call it a dark time, but it was, a, you know, a time where you really had to look straight into the mirror and and, and be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it was a combination of two things, I think. You know, I mean, it wasn't lost on John that I hadn't worked in that role on the previous tour. So there was a big proving ground that was going to be, have to be taken place there, you know. And this was the scare, Scarecrow Tour. I mean, it was clearly going to be John's biggest tour that he had ever done to date. And I, I just know in his mind, he was thinking, man, I've got to walk out on stage knowing that I've got the guy sitting over there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a rookie. You know, I'm a rookie pitcher pitching in the World Series right now, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that undermined it a little bit. Now, that said, I, I don't really think I did anything to help my cause there. I, as a matter of fact, I did things that didn't help my cause there because I didn't know how to interact with that personality yet. You know, I, I didn't have that skill yet. Uh, you know, he he didn't have respect for me yet. That respect was going to have to be earned, and it just did not exist yet. And, it, you know, it was that kind of thing of, well, you know, he doesn't have time for me to earn his respect. He's on the biggest tour of his life. So, you know, it kind of undermined the whole thing. And yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was added pressure that he did probably didn't feel like he needed. And so, all all that said, you know, it, you know, he's also kind of one of these guys where if you get under his thumb, I mean, he just will not let you up. He's just relentless, just relentless. Uh, I mean, it's so just what, a part were, of his personality. Were you thinking? What were you thinking to yourself in that moment? Like, don't show any weakness. Don't show any weakness. Don't screw up. Uh. Yes and no. I I, I mean, I, I also kind of believe if you're thinking that way, you're you're already done. Right. You know, I mean, okay. you, you just can't think like that in that situation. You've just got to, you've got to believe in what you're doing, present it, and let the chips fall where they may. You know. Now that said, I mean, part of that, part of that modern engineer's job is to keep that guy calm. I, I don't care whether it's John Mellencamp or anybody else. You know, is to build confidence into that performer that when they walk on stage, it's going to be not good. It's going to be great, and you're going to have a great show. Yeah. I mean, that that is part of it, and that is self fulfilling you know the more they feel like that the better they perform and the more the better they perform the more they feel like that i mean it's just you know it's just a a rapid circle there so you know and you've got to feed that as that in that position there you know so i think you got to feed it as a front of house engineer let alone a monitor engineer Uh, so you know there's a lot of responsibilities in that position that go uh, above and beyond what you can do technically you know and i honestly i just wasn't ready for it yet i I wasn't mature enough for it robert you just talking about how you felt like you weren't mature enough, you weren't ready for it. I think you also said that you weren't really great, you weren't really ready to like manage that kind of a relationship. And 30 years went by, I'm going to say, and now I have I have it on good word from a person whose opinion that I respect highly <laughs> has told me that you are one of the best people in the industry at managing many people's expectations at once. And that is one of the reasons that you're so great at your job. That's just like part of doing the job that this person really respects that you're doing. So what happened in the last 30 years that that took you from being, you know, maybe really terrible at relationship management to what other people see as, you know, the epitome of excellent relationship management? Well, I, I mean, let's 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 compare it right back to walking into a situation where you know nothing technically, right? You know, if you have that moment where you kind of go, I'm in over my head, then you're going to take the initiative. You're either going to cower or you're going to take the initiative to learn, right? I applied that exactly to that skill. 
relational things that I probably took for granted up to that point when I, you know, cause I, I honestly at that, even at that age, I had been exposed to a lot of heavyweight guys. I, I'd watched a lot of really great producers in the studio work who were a little heavy handed at times, you know, et cetera, and having to manage that. And all of a sudden I became keenly aware of that relational aspect to the job. And I was watching like a hawk and learning every time I watched somebody interact with an artist, you know, mm. uh, just literally, you know, learning on the job, so to speak. But by the same token, you know, kind of looking myself in the mirror and realizing my shortcomings there and going, OK, well, we're doing fine technically. Let's just carry on there. But this other piece of this is completely lacking. Let's let's really figure out how you're going to be that person. You know, I mean, you yeah. just have to figure it out. I mean, you have to. Yeah, first you have to recognize it, and then you have to chase it. You know, I think I might have alluded to it in the uh, in the book. You know, I you know that John Cougar experience, that John Mellencamp experience, came back to help me greatly on another gig where I worked with a very very similar personality. You know, I'll talk and about all it. I don't, sudden, I don't know if I remember. Yeah, well, I mean, many years later. I mean, what was it? Twenty some odd years later. You know, I I was asked to go work for Prince. It's almost like John Mellencamp on steroids working for Prince in terms of the personality I'm talking now. Okay. And, um, you know, I all of those lessons I learned from that early tour, I put into play on that tour because it was a very, very similar game. I mean, you know, working for Prince is about gaining his respect. Mm-hmm. Until you do that, all bets are off. It doesn't oh, wow. matter how good a job you do. It doesn't matter how good the show sounds. None of that. Until you gain that guy's respect... You were not going to be in that seat. It just was not going to happen, you know. And uh, like I said, I, I learned a lot of really, really valuable lessons working with Mellencamp on that. I, I remember recalling it kind of, you know, just subconsciously many times uh, in my time working with Prince of, nope, don't do this. Don't do that. You Can gotta. you think of any specific examples? I'm wondering if it's just a matter of uh, being competent and respectful over and over and over again, or if there was there's some specific things you felt like, this do say, this don't say. Are there any do's and don'ts that you can remember? You know, I'll give you the best example of it. You know, John had a way at times of testing you and playing you, where he would kind of say things to you to kind of get under your skin. And depending on how you reacted, the conversation would go on or it would stop. I didn't handle that well. I let a lot of things get under my skin that were probably innocent and meaningless. Mm. Uh, and, and it, you know, impacted the job. So I recognized that when it was going on with Prince very, very quickly. Because he, he would, you know, he had been through, I mean, I mean, his, it's legendary. You know, I mean, he's been through so many mixers. I mean, if you're on the list of mixers who's been fired by Prince, you're on a pretty elite list. You know? <laughs> and, you know, so the, the, the reputation kind of preceded itself there, you know. And I kind of quickly recognized he would say things that were kind of testing you. You know, like he would he would throw out these wild ideas of oh, this is what we need to do with the PA today. You know, for I don't know how, but somehow I recognize he's testing me right now. If we actually do this, he's actually going to lose respect for me because he's going to know that I'm just a yes man right now. Oh, wow. I'm just saying this to keep the job. Sure. Whereas if you push back against him in a meaningful way and say, "Look, really, we we can't do this, and here's why," and then you back that up. You've instantly gained some points on your respect credit card, you know. Okay. And I did that numerous times in that first couple of weeks that I worked with him. Because I'm going to tell you, that first week, especially, that I worked with him was really turbulent. I mean, it was really 
turbulent. Wow. I, I, a lot of guys would have just, I mean, they would have crumbled under it, you know. But, I, you know, I was able to kind of use that Mellencamp experience and kind of yeah, you, know, you, you wouldn't survive that first week and then turn it completely around, you know. I mean, you kind of had to know, it, you just had to have that experience before to know kind of the cycle and know, like, I will make it through this. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, it's one of those things just uh, keep taking your best shots, you know, be able to back up anything you say, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, just it's an integrity play, really, at the end of the day. Did he end you know? up firing you? No, no, okay. <laughs> I, I, I was in the, <laughs> no, so I'm not on the, the good list, right? Um, I was working on a record project at the time, and I, I only had about three weeks where I could do it. I, we were on a break from the record, so I thought, and a friend of mine asked me to come out and help him out on it. So I only had three weeks to come out and, and kind of salvage it, and they only had a couple more shows after that on the tour anyway. But okay. uh, by the end of it, I, I mean, he and I got on really famously. I mean, we were... I don't want to say we we're tight, but you know there was definitely mutual respect there, and I'm certain he would have asked me back, and I would have gone back. I would Good. have gone back because you know we kind of set some boundaries, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and both respected him. It was great. It was great. Robert, let's just wrap up the story about John Cougar Mellencamp because there's part of the story in the book that I found really impressive, and I just wanted to see if we could talk about it a little bit more. So you mm-hmm. lost a job, um, and at that point most people would have just gone home. Like usually you lose a job, you go do a different job or you go somewhere else, or you go home or whatever. But you felt you like you had a decision to make. You thought I could either go home or I could attempt to stay in this place where I've just been rejected. And so I'm just wondering like, why did you think that was a decision you had to make? Take us to that moment in your life, describe what was happening and kind of what was going on in your head. I'll tell you something. The day I got they told me they were going to replace me. I mean, they, you know, they had clearly already been working on it for a couple of days because they had the guy ready to come in on a moment's notice, you know. Uh, and that was kind of a dark day. I, I remember that being a pretty dark day for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether, I, I guess it's a function of the way I was raised, the way I was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to what to put it down to or to, what to give credit to. But there was just this innate sense in me of I've got to stick this out, and because you know there's some people that put their neck on the line for me, and if I just cower back home, not only will I look bad, but all of those people will look bad too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I've got to find a way to salvage not only my name but their name here, you know. And then on top of it, you know, there was that underlying thing of you know, and I honestly I realized it pretty quickly of. There, there's a part of me that's inadequate right now. There's a part of my skill set that's inadequate right now. Mm-hmm. And if they're bringing in the guy, I want to see what separates me from him. Okay. I want to watch him work. And, and I, I ended up being his systems engineer. I mean, I kind of went from mixer to setting up his stuff and standing right by him for the, you know, for the, rest, of the rest of the run. Wow. And you know, I, it, was, it was really important for me to see him work and see how he handled John, you know. Not that anybody handles John, but you know, how, how he how he interacted with him. You know that was a really it was. If I had to pick maybe one of the best decisions I ever made in my career, that would be top five for sure because it both opened up my eyes to some things that I was not doing, and also opened up my eyes to I can definitely do this job. I, I definitely have the stuff to do this job. I've just got to clean up some areas of my my approach. You know. So, Robert, one of the most helpful pieces of advice that you give in the book is if you want to be a front of house mixer, build relationships with artists. If you want to be a monitor mixer or systems technician, 
build relationships with sound companies. So with all the different paths people could potentially take to get into different areas of the industry, I thought that was uh, kind of great advice. So tell me more about this. It sounds like maybe the artist wants to choose the front of house sound engineer. That's normally the way the hiring is done, but not the monitor engineer and the system tech. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to lead you to believe this is an absolute hard and fast rule here. I, I, I have just watched it shift over a period of twenty or thirty years here. You know, there was a period of time, I, I would say, certainly through the eighties and maybe, maybe at the beginning of the nineties, but it had kind of petered out by then, where most, the vast majority of artists took their recommendations on front of house and modern engineers from the sound company that was going to be doing the tour was just kind of the way it went, you know, I mean, it was the the mode. And then that started to change a little bit in the 80s and the 90s because, you know, mixing became, I, I, I dare I say it this way, I hope I don't insult anybody by saying it this way, but it became more specialized. Okay. You know, I mean, you started seeing front of house positions, you know, by 1986, 87, I mean, that would rival, you know, the greatest control rooms in studios in the world. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it just became very... A, a lot more specialized. And I, I think the artist wanted to have a lot more say in who they were actually going to have mix the event, you know, and um, or mix their tour. Uh, whereas monitor guys, you know, I mean, they don't have necessarily, you know, they're not hanging in those circles. Those have always traditionally kind of come from, you know, a sound company kind of background. You know, it's it would be very rare for you to see somebody come from being a studio engineer to being a monitor engineer. It's happened. I'm sure it's happened, but that's rarer, much rarer than seeing somebody come from a studio environment and become a front of house engineer. Mm-hmm. And that started to happen a lot more through the late 80s and early 90s. And I think it's because the skills kind of collided a little bit. You know, it wouldn't it would not be uncommon for you to see a front of house engineer, you know, actually go on after the tour and work with the artists in the studio, you know, things like that. So, you know, it, you could see it all kind of starting to change a little bit, you know, where the front of house mixers became a lot more. Uh, there was a lot more independent contractors as front of house mixers than there were monitor engineers. And, and really, that's kind of the dividing line, you know, because once those artists found a front of house engineer that they really liked, they wanted to hold on to him. Got it. Yeah. Whereas if that guy came from the sound company, well, when the tour was over, they were going to put him on something else. And you kind of set yourself up for the collision, you know, where at some point he's going to be required to be on two tours and can't be there. You know, so the the artist found themselves kind of wanting to be, being able to hold on to, to their guy, you know. It's kind of funny because I think the monitor engineer is a much personal, closer relationship with the, the artist is on stage and, and making them feel confident, making them feel good. But I guess a lot of people, when you're starting out, if you're going to have one position, you have a front of house engineer, if you're on a, like a really small tour. And then later on, your more positions get added, like your monitor yeah, that's engineer right. and your system tech. Yeah, the monitor engineers, I, I, I will call it the luxury, but it, you know, it's the luxury moving forward, right? Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you like to have your mix console set up. Um, you have an excellent training video online that I definitely recommend everyone watches called Console Management and Live Mixing. And in it, you describe yep. the signal flow of a typical input. And I'm just going to run through it. You tell me if I if I got it right. And maybe you could sort of uh, talk a little bit about why you like to do that. So you like to go from uh, a channel input 
to then a preamp saturation emulation to a tape compression to EQ, and then all of your channels go to um, some kind of subgroup before they hit the master bus. Is that correct? Uh, that's almost correct. It goes, the signal path is actually emulation, equalization, and then saturation, okay. or then tape compression, I should say. Yeah. And and really, that's specific to digital consoles, right? So um, obviously, in an analog console, we don't have that necessarily that saturation and tape compression component to it. So. And you came to this uh, signal flow that you like to use on most channels because you came from working in the studio, right? And you were trying to kind of get those same sounds. Yeah, I, I mean, that is clearly an analog approach. And, and I don't necessarily use it on every input by any stretch of the imagination. But on inputs, and especially so when we're working with Petty, where we're, we are trying to get things, certain elements of that mix to sound very analog, that was the requirement. I mean, um, you know, I talk about that a little bit in that video that, you know, it, it's the one thing you have to remember in digital uh, that we seem to quickly forget. I, I, I don't know whether it's just different upbringings or what it is, but if you want a digital console to sound analog, you have to make it sound analog. It, it has none of the qualities of analog. We have the terrible tendency in this world right now, especially in manufacturing, etc., to try to provide you with this silver bullet right? The sure. silver bullet of, if you use this, you'll have the analog sound. You'll get everything you no. want. And it's just, it's just not the case. You know, if you go back and examine analog and why it sounded analog, really all you got to do is look at what was demanded of digital to understand what made analog sound the way it did. Meaning it was a combination of lots of things that create the analog sound, right? It's a preamp characteristic. It's transformers. It's circuit design. It's all kinds of things. Something that is harmonically rich. There may be some signal compression that comes from a function of the tape. You know, all kinds of things play into it. It's a sum of the parts, not just one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a tendency in digital to think, well, I'm going to put this one thing on it and it's going to sound analog. <laughs> no, you, you've got to treat the signal path as an analog signal path, you know? So... You know, the other piece of it that, you know, that you didn't mention there that I don't even know if I mentioned in the thing is I also also have actual hard transformers in my circuit path you know, because I want to create that sound. I, it's a funny story. Uh, when we got ready to do uh, Petty this last tour, uh, you know, I had I have a set of Western Electric transformers that I use right across my mix bus. And it was the first time I had ever worked with uh, Vic Wagner as my systems engineer and we were prepping the tour <laughs> and i have these set up like in a, in a in a lunchbox kind of thing you know and it's heavy i mean it, that thing must weigh 60 pounds oh wow you know? and so i i you know i got it set up with xlrs and everything and it's real clean really nice and i had i said you know i said vic i'm going to send you my transformers i want you to uh put them in the doghouse you know go ahead and mount them in there and then just patch them in the insert point right across the left right bus he was like okay yeah no problem blah 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 so these things show up, and I, I get this phone call. You know, it's Vic, and I'm thinking, oh, this must be about the Transformers. And he calls up, and he goes, you're kidding, right? Because <laughs> they're so heavy? You're kidding, right? Uh, he goes, we're going to add 60 pounds to the back of the console just to insert these Transformers across the mix. But I was like, dude, just just do it. And <laughs> please just trust me on this. I'll explain when we, when we get to rehearsals, you know. <laughs> so, we, you know, we get there, and, um, I, you know, I, I start pulling up you know, the mix and everything. I get things pretty settled in. And I said, come here for a second. 
And I just start taking the the master insert bus in and out, you know, just hitting those transformers and or not hitting the transformers. And his eyes got about the size of golf balls. You know, he was like, holy cow, you're kidding me oh, right wow. now, right? So the change is really obvious. Yeah, I was like, hey, yeah, this is not subtle stuff we're talking about here, buddy. You know, so, you know, I, it, it all comes from, you know, this all stems back to a much bigger conversation, really. But it's all about, you know, kind of building a sonic expectation in your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've said this many times. The mix is already done. It's in my brain. I, I've just got to execute it on the piece of technology now, right? The sound, the sound that I'm looking for, it already exists. It's in my head. I've just got to find out how to do it on the console now, you know? So, you know, and to me, that's maybe one of the biggest skills as a mixer that you can get is setting a level of expectation, you know? And, and instead of just searching for sounds, you know, kind of targeting sounds and going, I, I got to go get this specific sound here, you know? Robert, what's wrong with me setting all of my mic preamps in such a way that all of my channel faders will sit at zero? Because I want to be mixing around zero, so why don't I just set that up with my mic preamps? Uh, You can absolutely do that. The problem is you have then no way to offset those levels to create a music balance uh, because you have no grouping. So, you know, and this is kind of the... um, What's the word I'm looking for? The Achilles heel of people that want to work that way. Because I've worked that way in the past, but the secret of that has always been the subgroups, and people have not realized that in the past. Because if you just if, if you just put the faders at zero and then turn up the mic pre to get the level that you want to create the mix, especially so in digital, what you've what you've really damaged is your bit rate of your conversion. You know the bit depth of your conversion, mm-hmm. right? And you're now mixing families of music essentially on the preamps yep right if i want to turn down the drums what are you going to do you're going to turn down your faders well i mean you should honestly You, you know the idea is to start at least my idea this is what i present to people the idea is to set that preamp level where it is optimized for bit depth and dynamic range right meaning i want to set that signal to get its rms level as close to a maximum bit depth without possibility of overdriving or creating overs in that input especially for digital right Mm -hmm. and typically if i can convert those signals rms at about 20 21 bit that's right around line level you know the important piece of that is to understand where the line level is on that signal and once you do that everything flows from there everything flows so easy from there and I, I try to get people to say, well, I, and you really, in terms of faders, I want to keep those at, you know, plus six, minus 10, somewhere in that range, because that's the highest resolution of the fader throw, mm-hmm. right? I get the most detail work in that. Then the challenge becomes, well, if I've got all these drum inputs gained up to here and the faders up in that area, how do I turn it up or down, right? How do I set the level for the music that I'm going to mix today, mm-hmm. right? And you could do that with a VCA. I suggest people do it with an audio subgroup and use VCAs for for much other specialized things, because you don't want with VCAs. Obviously, you're affecting post fader buses off of those off of those uh, inputs, mm-hmm. right? Sure, you're saying if I if I have to turn down a VCA minus twenty to get the drums to sit at the right level in the PA system, now I've subtracted twenty dB of gain potential from any post fader aux. Now I'm in the kind of the same position as i was before i'm just a a, a one bus removed from it right so you know it's it's something i've been taught i luckily i was taught from a very very early age in terms of gain structure setting up consoles because i set up analog consoles exactly the same way Mm -hmm. um and it's just translated great into digital i had i had somebody ask me not long ago how how has your mixing changed with digital (laughs) 
<laughs> from analog. I was like, it hasn't changed one bit. It's just a different piece of technology. Yeah. You, you still know? have to make the technologies interface with each other, and that means uh, proper proper voltage. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't impacted my mixing one iota other than I can put more detail into it. I can put more variance in it, uh, more controlled variance in it song to song if I want to do it. You know, the, those kind of things are great about analog for sure. But in terms of just setting gain structure and blah, 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 I, I do it exactly the same way I did it in analog. Exactly the same. Robert, what outputs do you send from the console to the PA? I break up the PA into, you know, uh, especially in line source, you know, a, a, a main and, you know, if we've got split arrays, then I will do aux sends to it, all driven from matrix. Uh, so there's an indiv- independent matrix for every, quote unquote, system in the PA system. You follow me there? Yeah. So you, you take your left, right bus. I'm, I'm guessing that you're mixing to stereo, basically, and then you're sending that with the matrix to the various outputs. That's correct. Uh, and it is a little more specialized than that. And I, I've been doing this for a long time. I was even doing this in analog. Uh, for a long time too, where I I take that matrix and I actually separate the left-right bus from the vocal groups, right? So my actual left-right bus is only music. Interesting, okay. And then my vocal subgroups, meaning lead vocal, backing vocal, whatever, go to the matrix directly. They do not go through that music left-right. And and I, I would probably never do this in the studio. I don't think I would anyway. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, I certainly do it in live sounds because it gives me the ability to tonally and dynamically address that music mix without the possibility of ever impacting gain before feedback on the vocal. Okay. So, so it, it works just fantastic. The only challenge you have with it in digital really is you got to pay very close attention to latency there because you're going to have a latent path. Right. You know, especially that, if you do a lot that. of inserts on the left-right. On the left, right, you actually have a music mix that is going to be latent to the vocals. So you'll end up having to delay those vocal groups to put them back in time with the left, right. But it's, I mean, that's simple to do in today's digital world. So. Okay, that's interesting. So you, but you got to pay attention to it, for sure. Right. So, And you're not doing this uh, so that you can send the vocals to different places, like to different speakers or arrays or whatever. You're just doing nope. it so that you can um, have another, another option of um, doing more processing on just the band mix, the music mix. That's correct, okay. yeah. And then it, be, it actually becomes a mixing feature, too, because if you look at the layout on my console, I have the master left, right sitting right next to my lead vocal on the console. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing, you know, I may be doing anywhere from half dB to 2 dB rides on the master left, right against the vocal. You know, mm-hmm. and then you know maybe maybe if it's a big exciting part, you can literally just turn up the band and then turn them right back down. It, it I've said this before, it, it becomes intoxicating to mix that way. <laughs> it, it just becomes so much fun, and so you know you just you get so zoned in, and, and just these little changes make big differences in you know places that you reveal the vocal and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just once you get used to it, you'll you'll just never go back. Tell us about your work bag. What are some fun or interesting pieces uh, that you bring with you, or, or I don't know, pieces that you think are important that you would never want to be without? <laughs> Job number one there is my headphones. I, I, I mean, it's, it, I, they asked me, Live Sound Magazine asked me the other day for my de- desert island piece of gear. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said my headphones. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's, it's honestly the only thing I think I could go to a gig without and not survive the gig, probably. I, I just, I rely on them so heavily, you know. Mm-hmm. So headphones. Um, what kind do you? I've have? got a little. Uh, I use the uh, Shures, the eight forties. I've been using those for a long, long time okay. now. So uh, I have a little uh, impulse clicker. I mean, it's basically a polarity checker, 
that I take uh, that I use to do some acoustical analysis of the impulse response of the PA short of smart and any FFT I'm using to do that. It's just a really, really quick down and dirty way to check the impulse of the PA in the room. I mean, it's just literally this thing that happens, right? And you if you have reflections, you have any kind of thing, you have out of time areas of your PA system, it just reveals it immediately. And then you can kind of go in and start uh, looking for it with your FFT, you know? And I know people are going to ask me this later, so what is the model of that? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I didn't think you would. <laughs> and it's it's in my uh, it's in my travel kit, which is just coming back from the Latin. That's Grammys, okay. If you so. remember later, email me, and I'll I'll put it on the page. I'll the email interview. it to okay. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I know you use Smart, but I also yep. am sure that on every show that you work on, there is also a dedicated systems technician. So what is that relationship like? Because I'm sure they're, they are also using their own audio analyzer to set up the PA. So do they sort of set it up and do their own tests using smart? And then you come in and you also use it and you guys work together. What's that relationship like? No, we work uh, hand in hand in that operation. And, you know, this is something I've kind of stood by and, and actually taught for a long time. I used to used to have a, um, a seminar program called uh, the Complete Front of House Engineer, and it was uh, centered around that idea of if you're going to be the mixer, you also should be the system tuner. Mm, okay. Because those two things are so interrelated. You know, as a mixer, you, you've kind of got to know, you know, where the problem comes from. You know, is it an input problem? Is it an output stage problem? You know, you, you've got to be able to discern that. And if you just partition off system engineering and make it this mysterious thing that happens over there, it be kind, of, it kind of becomes the ghost in the machine. It, be, it be kind of becomes the thing you can blame for anything, right? And if you're a front-of-house engineer that is – and it's not that you need to handle all of it, but you need to be involved in the tuning of that PA system to understand what's happening. And, I, I, I mean, I can give you a great example of it when we were working with Petty. With Vic uh, on the last Petty tour, he was probably the first guy that I've let – I don't want to say have total control over it, but he and I were so in sync in terms of what we were going to do on the tour with the PA system that I, I knew he was thinking like I was thinking, oh, you wow. know, and we, we kind of proved that over the course of the few weeks of the tour, you know, where it, his, his mindset and his approach was very, very similar to mine. So, you know, it became a really, really easy thing. Now that said, I, uh, the great example I'll give you here is, you know, I, I think Vic, and I, I'm sure it's just a function of the way he was taught or, you know, it's maybe some of the music he's worked with in the past. He would have a tendency to over-address the low-mid content in the PA system mm-hmm. with regard to me. And, you know, if I was the mixer and I didn't know that he was doing that, if I didn't understand that that was what was going on, I I could blame all sorts of things for it because it <laughs> impacted two things, you know. It really impacted the tonality of the vocal, mm-hmm. the snare drum, and the bass guitar. Every day that I would turn on the tracks in virtual sound check, it would be immediately apparent to me. And I would go, no, you need to release that filter yeah. right there. You know. Whereas you know, it would be very tempting if you didn't know that was going on over there to kind of go, oh, maybe it's the snare drum today. Or maybe it's the snare mic. Or maybe it's this. Or, wow, this room doesn't sound very warm. You know, blah. I mean, you could just blame all sorts of things where because I was involved in the tuning and because I understood his approach, I could look at the the filter set and go, no, you you got to give me that 200 back. That's that's taking all the joy off my snare drum, you know. 
I'm trying to sort of imagine what your conversations would be like, because most of the time I'm working by myself. And I think a lot of the people listening are also kind of working by themselves. They're setting up the PA and they're mixing. If you're working with someone else, there's a whole other step where now your thoughts have to come out of your head into words. And you need to be able to say, (laughs) you need to be able to talk about why you're doing what you're doing. And it's not just... I'm just doing this because you have to be able to say, so I'm imagining like if I'm the system tech and I'm working with you and I'm saying, all right, Robert, so here's the list of the measurements that I'm going to take. And here's the, you know, the, what I'm looking for in each one. Were there those kind of conversations or did he just sort of went through it and then you would listen to the results? I'll give you a great example of this uh, where, you know, there's a couple of different philosophies here and, and it's not that, one is necessarily right or wrong, but one is applicable or not applicable to a given situation. And that is how, and I've learned over time through dealing with other systems engineers, how differently I do this compared to a lot of people. And that is addressing front fill. All of the bands that I've worked with have had live backstage or live stages, meaning actual amplifiers, actual drums, all of the things, right? So my take has always been on it that the corrupting source in terms of time and phase for the front fill is not the PA system, it's the back line, right? That is what makes the front fill sound so horrible down there. And, you know, as we all know, when we have a comb filter that's being developed by two sources arriving at different times, there's two ways to address it. Turn one down or time align it. Mm-hmm. That's the only, the only choice if you want to get the phase back in, in play. Well, the, the normal response there would be the front fill needs to be louder than the back line. Right. That's how we're going to get the phase right down there. And I've never bought into that. I'm like, no, we especially now that we have digital consoles, we have the ability to put all of that back line in time with that front fill and make that front fill a supportive. You know, we're back to sound reinforcement now in that in that zone. I mean, it's the most important zone you can pick in the building to do. The, the, all of the, the really meaningful ears are going to be sitting in those first 10 rows. Oh, wow. Know? Yeah. So just, I mean, those are the people that are going to go back and talk to the band after the show, fellas, you know? So just so, so I'm clear on this, so um, you're saying that in the front there, let's, let's, just to be really clear, let's, let's say the very first row, um, there, the interaction you should be most concerned with is not the front fill and the main, because you're actually getting a lot more acoustic level from the stage than you are in those seats than the main. So the main two relationships you should be worried about are the level and time interaction between the front fill and the back line. That's, that's my take on it, okay. for sure. A- especially in today's world, because we have such good pattern control from the PA system down there, right? I mean, you can make that kind of its own little standalone, you know, PA system down there. I mean, obviously, you're going to have a zone of interaction at some point where the main PA meets the front fill. No, no doubt about it. But I'm willing to concede that to make the eight rows in front of it considerably better you know considerably better so you know i and the reason i bring this up is because you know and i have run into this countless times where i walk in on a show that i'm going to mix and you know there's no sense of that you know everybody just takes the front fill and aligns it to the pa and we're off to the races and it's like but we still have this colliding amplitude down there now with the pa and the front fill Mm -hmm. down there and it's not good you know it doesn't sound good now I can understand one piece of resistance to that would be well how do how do we do that before the band is here because 
you've got to wait till sound check then to be able to set level and time for your front fills. Is that right? No, I can, I can, I'll just put an acoustic source down there, like a speaker, mm-hmm. you know, take a little control room monitor, a wedge, whatever, and make a good guess at it. Okay. I mean, you can get really close. Like a lot of times, you know, if there, it, it's harder with, if there's ears, but if there's actual wedges, just send pink noise through the drum fill, FFT it to the front fill. Wow. It's a great place to start. And then if you want, you can start to get really, really cool with it. And, it, and honestly, it, again, it speaks to kind of doing subgroup work, you know, actual audio subgroup on your work. Because then you can create a matrix of subgroups that are doing the front fill and time align each instrument basically to that front fill. Mm-hmm. And, and now create something that sounds, I mean, you could stand down there and it just sounds like a back line with vocal in it, you know. Are you doing that? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. I I yeah. I was sort of thinking about that, and I was like, no, that's too complicated. <laughs> no, it's not. It, it's actually very simple now, uh, because because of the amount of buses that we have on the digital consoles. The the idea of duplicating a set of subgroups and creating a front fill set of subgroups is easy now. You know, easy. I Piece see. So cake. if you're, if say for example you're, um, you have some guitar amps that are farther significantly farther downstage than your drum fill or your drums or whatever the group they're in, then you could just delay those in their synth to the front fill back to the drums. Is that what we're talking about? That's correct. Yeah. Because you know, that the place where guys get confused with it is they, they look at the guitar amp on stage and say, well, it's already late. Why would you be delaying it? And it's like, well, I'm de- what I'm de- actually delaying is the microphone on the amp that is hitting you at time zero out of the PA system. Right or out of the front fill system, I should say, right? Yeah. So it's it's actually early. The microphone version of that amplifier is arriving early, so you do have the ability to delay it back if you want to do it, and you should. You should. And the you know the best part of all of that is it really reinforces localization in that front fill, meaning you know if I'm standing, you know center, you know, and I've got guitars panned, etc. If it matches their placements on stage, man, that becomes really cool down there. Nice. Really cool. Nice. And, and of course, we were doing the LCR thing with the PA. Well, I did LCR ground fill as well. I mean, it just translated right down to the front of the stage. And and really, the proof is in the pudding, man. I mean, it, you know, I was always doing those sound check events, and one of the things we would always showcase was what we were doing with those front fill, and everybody would just go, man, that front fill sounds unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, it, it can do it if you can take some time. I mean, we, we have to be better than just... Well, let's throw a cabinet up on the subs and turn it on. That'll be front fill. I, I, we can do better than that. I'm pretty sure. You know, I could um, do a test where I place a microphone or even just stand and listen at that front fill position, and just listen, just measure the mains. How loud is that? Just measure the front fill solo. How loud is that? Or I guess they're not level set yet. So it'd be interesting to just measure the mains versus just measure uh, the acoustic energy coming off the stage without the mains and mm-hmm. see which one of those is louder. And and for this kind of situation that you're suggesting, it might be really clear that, hey, that level coming off the stage is significantly, let's say, uh, 20 dB louder than what you're actually hearing from the mains. Yes, obviously, we should be managing the interaction between the front fill and the stage uh, more right. than the front fill and right. the main. Okay. If the PA is loud enough to to work with the back line down there, I mean, to be over the back line, I mean, that tells me that the PA is covering right to the front row. But here's the problem. It's still going to, that, that offset is still going to exist. 
right? The PA is probably not going to be in time with the back line when it when it arrives down there. There's still going to be some offset there, and honestly, it's part of what I part of my design when I do the PA. I always design for a front fill, and push the PA coverage out about ten rows. They don't want to hear it coming from above their head anyway. You want to be able to pull their attention down to what they're looking at, you know, and the front fill is really, really effective for that. Robert, what is one book that has been immensely helpful to you? Ooh, I'm assuming you mean an audio book. No, it could be anything. <laughs> I mean, I was talking to what is uh, talking to Jamie Anderson. He said Sid Hartha. I was talking to Michelle uh, Petinato yesterday, and she said um, a book, a fiction book she read in high school. So, oh my gosh! Want. Okay, let me think about that. Well, I'll, actually, <laughs> okay. I'll give you. Um, uh, I'll give you two books. Uh, one I'm almost done with. One I'm just starting, and I know this one I'm starting is just going to bend my mind. Um, but they they've both had a significant impact on me, on me in the last couple of months. Uh, one is called The Revenge of Analog, mm. uh, and it's not what you think about, although it is what you think about. Uh, I think it's about. Uh, it's actually the like they cover a bunch of different things in this book, not just audio. They do cover audio and the kind of the resurgence of vinyl. Uh, but they also talk about the resurgence of the handwritten word, the published magazine, the you know film, uh, you know actual film, and these guys that are kind of taking these things on and what impact they're actually having on society. Uh, and it's a fascinating read, and it actually validates a lot of things that I've thought even about analog versus digital. You know, my my take on it for a long time, especially in the recording studio, was that what people were yearning for in analog versus digital in the studio was not just the sound quality. Matter of fact, it wasn't primarily the sound quality. It was the workflow that they were missing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's a pace to analog that is really, really attuned to creativity and creative work by an artist where digital kind of speeds past all that. It's where the speed actually works to your disadvantage a little bit in terms of the creativity. So, you know, that's just one example of it. Uh, there are tons of other examples in the book, you know, talking about word, you know, actual board games versus, you know, phone games or online games or even gaming, you know, uh, in a setting where you're by yourself versus sitting in a community of players and, and playing, you know, the, all, all of that kind of stuff in that book. It, it's really got me thinking about a lot of things, uh, even with regard to audio. So that, that has definitely shaped my thinking lately. Okay. And then there's another book um, that I'm reading called The Perfectionist, um, which is a really cool read, a really easy read. It's a, it's a thick book, but it's an easy read. And it's about these significant points in history where precision played a role in the development of a technology uh, and and how we we w- simply would not have been able to move forward without an element of precision in these people's work mm. and the first one that, that they talk about which is really cool is talking about the steam engine where you had to have a cylinder and a piston element that was precise enough not to leak steam. Like they had to, needed to be able to machine it well enough where it would seal and not release steam. Okay. And there was only one guy in the world that was able to work in that kind of precision. Oh, wow. He had developed a mes- method for doing it. And I think it had to do with gun rifling or something like that. But he was the guy that, like they stumbled upon this guy. Otherwise, the steam engine doesn't move forward for probably decades, you know. And uh, there's, I, I haven't made it all the way through the book yet, but there's just tons of, 
uh, examples of this in that book, uh, you know, and the idea of talking about uh, even being able to, to discern accuracy versus precision. You know, it was, it's just a really, if you're kind of a geeky minded person, it's a great, great read. So, cool. where is the best place for people to follow your work? Right now, Facebook. I am in. Uh, I'm definitely in the planning stages for my own website. It's been a little bit of a monster to do it, but I'm going to try to make it a portal to all the things I've done. Uh, so I'll, I'll bait the hook a little bit with it. So yeah, at robertscoville.com, you'll be able to get to Eldon's Boy Productions, which is all my production work. Uh, you'll be able to get to Music Canvas Recorders, which is all the studio work here. Uh, there's going to be, uh, I, I've actually had somebody request that I put all the album blogs up there. So I'll probably just start an, a live album blog oh, and cool. keep that going on there. Every article I've ever written or contributed to, et cetera, will be housed there. Uh, all of the podcasts I've played or been a part of, radio broadcasts, et cetera, will all be portaled there as well. So, yeah, like I said, it's a little bit of an animal to put together, but I think it'll be really good once it's done. It'll be a good resource for some information for some people, for sure. Yeah, I hope you have a section with all of your, I mean, obviously a lot of it's educational stuff, but... Um be great to have sort of a combined archive of all of your educational materials, whether they be uh, videos or, um, you know, articles. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be direct links to all the YouTube stuff I've done as well, for right. sure. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to get all that kind of in one place. And honestly, my my reason for doing it is a little bit selfish because it's just so <laughs> unwieldy to do it right now. I need to get it all in one place where you can get to it quickly, where even I can get to it quickly. So Right. Well, Robert Scoville, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Hey, always a pleasure, Nathan. I, I always enjoy chatting with you, man. You have a, a great insight on a lot of this stuff. I, I I enjoy the things you put together. It was great to contribute to the book. That was that was a lot of fun. So I'm hoping you're having good success with that. Sound design. I want to thank Francois Leclerc for the music in today's episode. Look for a link to more of his music in the podcast show notes. Sound Design Live is supported by Bob, Chris, Dave, DC Sound Up, Elias, Shinkuye, Joel, Michael, and Rodai Free Radio. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. <laughs>